Mentally, I'll be honest with you, still feel like I'm in prison. Not that easy to get over that mental part. I'm physically out here, but my mind is still kind of in prison. I'm Damian Bulwa, and this is Fifth Admission. That voice you just heard was Hamid Hayat, a Muslim-American man who paid a heavy price, including 14 years behind bars for America's fear of terrorism after 9-11. You might have heard of Hamid before. He grew up in a Pakistani-American family in Lodi, just east of the Bay Area. His father was the neighborhood ice cream man. But his life changed when an FBI informant named Nassim Khan moved to town, befriended Hamid, and began to secretly record their conversations. In May 2005, in a story that made international headlines, Hamid and his father were arrested. In an FBI interrogation, Hamid confessed to attending a terrorist training camp during a trip to Pakistan. Or at least that's what the government said. When Hamid was convicted, it seemed like the end of the story. But Hamid and his attorneys waged a long legal fight to overturn that conviction. And they succeeded. In 2019, Hamid walked out of prison ready to restart his life. But how do you do that? That's the question that Chronicle reporter Jason Fagoni wanted to ask when he began to follow Hamid more than a year ago and talk to him about his life. My guest today is Jason Fagoni, and throughout this episode, you'll also hear Hamid Hayat speaking from interviews that Jason conducted. To read Jason's full story, please go to sfchronicle.com slash Hayat. That's H-A-Y-A-T. Jason, an incredible story. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Jason, who is Hamid Hayat, and why did you want to follow him and write about him? What was it about his case that you wanted to learn more about? Yeah, so so Hamid's case was one of the most famous, high-profile terrorism cases of the post-9-11 era. It was a big deal then. It was national, international news. There were news crews covering the trial from all over the world. And the government said it was a big deal, told the public it was important because it showed, they said, that they could prevent terrorist attacks by discovering sleeper cells here in the homeland and disrupting them. And they portrayed, presented the arrest and prosecution and ultimately the conviction of, of Hamid as a win for America and American security. But later on, the case became famous for a different reason that you, that you mentioned, which is that it, it fell apart and uh, the conviction was reversed and the charges against him were dropped. And I, I, I mean, I, I'm always interested in stories about wrongful convictions. Uh, I guess I was interested in Hamid for a couple of reasons. You know, one is that he represents a whole group of young Muslim American men who were targeted after 9-11 by the FBI, you know, in some cases on thin evidence. And they were put under surveillance, mosques were infiltrated, you know, informants were recruited and paid. And I guess I was curious what it was like for someone to be on, on the other side of that, someone like Hamid. And I, you know, I noticed something too when I read about the case. I mean, there's been a lot of terrific journalism done on Hamid in this case, in, including by you, Damien. I'm not, I'm not sucking up to you. The <laughs> listeners uh, should know that Damien <laughs> uh, covered the case and covered the trial um, back in 2005, 2006, right? And of course, these are these are clips that I that I read uh, before I started my work on the, on the story. There's there's been a lot of um, terrific reporting. You know, great investigative reporters have have really sunk their teeth into it um, and have exposed a lot of the the problems in the case uh, be well before the story. But you know, reading a lot of that work, it was clear that you know Hamid had never really 
participated in the stories about him. And uh, it didn't seem like he had spoken at length with journalists or answered questions about what he was thinking or feeling throughout this whole process. And, you know, all this stuff had been written about him and, and he was kind of absent in it. And I didn't know if he'd be willing to talk, but I thought it would be worth uh, reaching out and, and asking. Well, thanks for the shout out, Jason. And, and you're right. I mean, it was very frustrating not to be able to speak to Hamid Hayat, which is often the case in a, in a criminal matter. And not only was he unable to speak in the beginning, but during his whole appeals process, of course, he was unable to speak. Right. So I was really intrigued when you began following him. I, I wonder how you connected with Hamid. Was he ready to talk about uh, his ordeal? Uh, did you have to build a relationship with him, build trust? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I did. So I started by by uh, contacting his appellate attorney, his lead appellate attorney, uh, Dennis Rudin, who's the one who who led this team, this legal team that spent more than a decade on the case, uh, trying to overturn the conviction, get Hamid out of prison, and ultimately succeeded. Um, you know, Rudin is a central person in Hamid's life in in a lot of ways, and I think he had had been looking for a way to help Hamid tell his story. Uh, in his own words, uh, you know, with his own voice, I, I think originally they had been planning to have some kind of press conference, but that was before the COVID pandemic hit and the plans for that got scotched. And then, and then I came along and, and asked uh, if Hamid would be willing to talk with me. And I guess the timing just happened to be right. So, um, so I started interviewing Hamid first with uh, Reardon present, and then ultimately, um, you know, just just me and Hamid speaking, you know, asking him about pretty much every aspect of what he'd been through. And at first, we did the interviews by Zoom. I think at the time, his father was uh, still dealing with the aftermath of a COVID diagnosis. And uh, and then once Hamid felt comfortable, we spent time together in person. And I met his family. Ended up speaking with uh, you know a bunch of his relatives, friends, and uh, people he was in prison with. And uh, even, you know, with his permission, his uh, his therapist. My mental state is just, I still kind of have a sense of being in prison, honestly. Not used to being around so many people out here, too many people around me and everything. I'm adjusting, but it's taking time, actually, being around so many people at, at once. It's just fast moving out here. It's more faster than what I'm used to. That's Hamid Hayat, who spent 14 years in prison after being convicted on charges of supporting terrorism, a conviction that was ultimately overturned. I want to get to the time that you spent with him and, and ask you what Hamid's like and how he's trying to rebuild his life. But there is something that's so striking in your work, Jason, that I've rarely seen before, which is that you paint a vivid picture of prison life for Hamid Hayat, talking to him, and as you say to, to inmates that were there at the same time. What did you learn by doing that? Yeah, I mean, so Hamid's time in prison was actually mostly what we talked about at first because it was, it's still vivid to him, and um, I, I think that's true for a lot of a lot of people who have um, been through long incarcerations is that they're still very much imprinted by their their time in prison. That's that's very much true for Hamid. So, so so you know, no one who met Hamid in prison thought that he could have committed a terrorist attack. It was really striking. His first years in prison, he spent at this um, this unusual secretive place that the government spun up after 9-11 called the Communications Management Unit. 
um, you know, it had a nickname, uh, Little Gitmo, a reference to Guantanamo Bay. And this was not a place where, where um, you know, the worst or the highest profile terrorists, uh, terror convicts were, were, were placed. Those people tended to go to a supermax uh, prison. But this was sort of, uh, you know, the, uh, the second tier t- uh, terror convicts, I guess. And, uh, and Hamid ended up there as one of the younger, younger men. And uh, I spoke with some of the, the guys who were in this um, secretive unit with him. And um, it was really clear that, that a, lot, a lot of them looked at Hamid and they were confused about what he was doing there. I mean, he, he just did not seem to belong, yeah, even in this place that was designed to isolate people, right, where no one naturally belongs. And um, he struck people there, you know, other incarcerated guys as, as very simple and shy and, and humble. And more than that, some of the some of the prisoners who were educated recognized when they talked uh, with Hamid that he did not fit the mold of an Islamic radical because he 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 understood his own uh, religious tradition very poorly. You know, I interviewed some of these these guys and uh, and they really liked Hamid a lot, and uh, and they also were just baffled by his. Uh, <laughs> His attitude and his his failure to grasp the very sort of basic basic elements of of Sunni Islam and uh, and one of them you know one of them got so frustrated with Hamid one time that he that he he told him to his face he said you're no terrorist you're a tourist and this was the pattern that repeated throughout Hamid's uh, years of incarceration he would he would be transferred to a new prison you know people in the prison would hear uh, that he was some kind of famous terror convict and then they would meet him and they would be you know they would be baffled and eventually Hamid you know. Uh, over over years, he won over a number of prison employees, even who who began to to kind of root for him to uh, to win his freedom. And he's actually still in touch with with some of these people today. Before we get to that freedom that he finds, Jason, I do think there's one point that we need to make clear here. The center of the case against Hamid Hayat was that he had confessed to going to a terrorist training camp, and ultimately, what he and his attorney said was that it was a false confession. In your talks with him, did you ask him, you know, why did you confess? Why did you break down in interrogation? Sure. Uh, well, I, I think it can be hard for people to understand intuitively why someone would ever admit to a crime that they did not do. It's certainly difficult for juries to understand this often. But, um, you know, what, what Hamid told me uh, was that when he was in this FBI interrogation, uh, he was uh, confused and he was tired. And he initially denied that he had ever attended a terror camp. He actually denied it multiple times. So, that, so the FBI interacted with him um, on, on, on multiple days, first in late May when he was uh, returning from a trip to Pakistan. Uh, they asked him, you know, did you spend any time with uh, a terrorist or at a camp in Pakistan? He said, no, I, I went there to get married. I was on a family trip. Um, you know, several days later, two FBI agents came to the uh, the Hyatt home in Lodi and asked the same questions. Hamid again denied everything, said that he, you know, had gotten married. He was on a family trip. And then they asked him to uh, to come to FBI headquarters on, on June 4th, 2005 and answer some more questions. And his father said, uh, "You know, he would he would bring him. They had nothing to fear. They had nothing to hide. So, so both of them ended up going to FBI headquarters, and that's when, um, over the course of sixteen hours, multiple FBI agents uh, interrogated Hamid, and uh, and kind of broke him down. And what he says is that uh, he he just wanted to leave. He wanted to sleep, 
And he realized that he was not going to be allowed to leave unless he gave the FBI what they wanted and told them what they wanted to hear. And so he, uh, after initially denying it and denying it, he um, he changed his answers and started to tell them that yes, he had gone to a camp. And um, you know, I think I think this this is credible because you know this is not the tapes of the uh, interrogation are not a secret, uh, and you can and you can see on the tapes and you can read in the transcript that you know that Hamid is both asking repeatedly asking to be allowed to sleep, and it's also clear that he does he does not understand the import of what's really happening to him. There's there's this kind of uh, heartbreaking uh, line toward the end of the interrogation when one of the FBI agents actually tells Hamid, you know, well, he asked them, what, like, what's going to happen next? This is after midnight. They've been interrogating him for hours. And he says, well, what's going to happen next? Um, where am I going to go? Am I going to come back tomorrow? And they say, no, Hamid, you're going to be arrested. You're going to jail. Do you understand that? And and it, his answer makes it clear that he he has no idea what's going on. And he says, okay, well, if, if if do they just have do they have some place there where I can go to sleep? That was the confession. I kept on denying, denying, denying it, and then I just got tired. I'm like, yes, I did. Like you know, I just confessed to it so I can like they can let me go because I was tired and everything and. I just said it so they can let me go. Like I was just like, man, just okay. You guys got what you guys want. Can I go? Like I'm, I was tired. I just wanted, to, you know, sleep. Let's take a quick break on Fifth and Mission to read Jason Fagoni's full story on Hamid Hayat. Go to sfchronicle.com/hayat. That's H-A-Y-A-T. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Welcome back to Fifth Emission. I'm Damian Bullwood, joined by Chronicle reporter Jason Fagoni. Jason, when Hamid Hayat finally goes free from prison, what is his life like? Is it joyous? Is it frightening? Is he angry at the government for putting him there? He says he's not angry. He does not seem angry. And this is a remarkable thing about him. He does not appear bitter. He says he has no grudges. Grudges won't do him any good. He, he appears to be a pretty well-adjusted and happy uh, person. Uh, and this is pretty amazing given what he's been through. I mean, just the fact that he uh, does normal things is, is kind of a, a triumph. He has, you know, he has a car. Uh, he has a cat uh, named Oreo. You know, he, he has a job. He works at Amazon, actually, uh, in an Amazon fulfillment center in the Stockton area. And uh, his coworkers really like him. And probably most of them don't don't know his his backstory. A, f- a few of them do, but but a lot don't. And the ones that he has told have have told Hamid that they um, they can't believe it, given the the way he walks around work with uh, you know a smile on his face. You know. Uh, that said, he he has difficult days. He he still struggles uh, with sort of symptoms of the the long incarceration. People who've been in in uh, prison for a long time can exhibit symptoms that resemble uh, PTSD. And uh, and Hamid has you know struggled with uh, anxiety, insomnia, uh, hypersensitivity to to uh, sound. And these are these are fairly typical of people who've been in uh, been in prison for a while. How would you describe him in general after spending time with him? What's he like? I mean, if you met him and talked to him uh, and had coffee with him, you would just you would you would not guess uh, that he's been through all of this, right? 
he strikes me as a guy who is, you know, doing well most days. And he's still kind of trying to figure out the bigger picture, bigger plan of what he's going to do next. He's, he's searching for a, a purpose or a vocation. Um, and, and I do get the, I do get the strong sense that he's, that he's torn about, about telling people his story, uh, you know, and, and revealing what he's been through, even though he did decide to talk about it with me, you know, he's hesitant about that for obvious reasons, I think, right? Like there's a, there's a part of him that really wants to tell people he's close to what he's been through. Cause it's just a big part of his story. Like the same way that you want to tell a friend or somebody that you're close to what, what, what you, what you're all about. I mean, there, there've been times when he, <laughs> he, you know, the, the compulsion was so strong that he would, he would, uh, he would be having, um, lunch with a, a coworker or something. And, and, uh, he, uh, you know, he would just suddenly take out his phone and he would say, do you know who I am? And he would Google his own name. Right. And they would hand the phone to the coworker and the coworker would scroll through pages and pages and pages and pages of Google results. And just, you know, with jaw open, because how can this be that guy? How can this be this, that, that Hamid Hayat? Right. And so that, that, that impulse exists to share, but, but he's also, also cautious, right? Because it, because of what happened to him. I mean, it's, it's hard for him to walk into a mosque. He says he doesn't know who anyone is. Uh, it's hard for him to be around strangers sometimes. And, um, and there's some aspect of, of getting out of prison after that much time where he has to figure out how to grow up again, how to, how to kind of start his life over, you know, make a new life for himself. And how do you do that if you're in his position? You know, what, what do you do? Where do you go? I, I, I don't know. He, he decided to talk to me, he said, because he feels a duty to, to talk about it. He, does, he doesn't want this kind of thing to happen to anyone else. But there's definitely a big part of him that wants to be anonymous. Uh, you know, he told me one time that uh, he wants to go to a place where no one knows who I am. I want to ask you a little more about the process of a reporting a story like this over many months. Ultimately, who was willing to talk to you that was, a, that was key in this case and who wasn't about their roles? People around Hamid, certainly his advocates, um, you know, family, were happy to talk about him. I was able to speak with uh, a member of the, the uh, government trial team, uh, David Deitch, former federal prosecutor. He gave me some of the Department of Justice perspective on the case. I was uh, less successful in reaching FBI agents who worked on the case, and I did not receive any response from any informant. Jason, what happened to two people that that you write about? One, Umar Hayat, Hamid's father, and the other, the woman who you mentioned he was planning to marry when all of this happened. Yeah. So uh, Umar is 64 now. His life has been profoundly disrupted. You know, this case didn't just, uh, you know, harm Hamid, harm the people around him, the people closest to him, his, his family. Before all of this, Umar was a breadwinner in the family. Uh, he was a vigorous guy. He he really enjoyed his job driving the ice cream truck. Yeah, I asked him why he liked it one time. He said, you know, he, 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 before that, he had spent years as a laborer in, in, in the field picking fruit. He said when he, when he started driving the ice cream truck, you know, the boss man isn't on your back all the time. <laughs> he really liked it. And then all of this happened. Right? And so he refers... All of this he refers to as the tragedy with Hamid. And the tragedy with Hamid left Umar, you know, sapped of resources, sapped of his strength and drained of uh, his savings because their legal bills were so high. Actually, the family had to sell their house after the trial because they had to 
spend so much money on legal bills. And, and for a time they were, they were living uh, together in a garage. And um, after that, um, Umar was unable to find steady, reliable employment in the Lodi area because, you know, whenever he tried, people remembered him from the trial and they, they, uh, they thought he was uh, a terrorist. He was, he, he was not able to drive his ice cream truck anymore because uh, no one wanted to buy ice cream from, uh, from somebody they thought was a terrorist. As for Hamid's wife, he says he has not reached out to her after getting, getting out of prison. They, um, they ended up divorcing while he was in prison. He lost his marriage as a result of this because, um, you know, it was just too long, too long to make her wait, he felt. In the end, Jason, what did you learn from spending time with Hamid Hayat? Yeah, I, I, I honestly, this is, a, this is a bad answer, but like, I, I, the answer is that I don't know. I, I feel like I should have, I should have an answer. I was looking at this question when you, when you sent some of the draft questions, I was, I was just thinking like, how do I answer this? Um, I, I, I mean, part, part of the, part of the, part of the incredible thing here is that I, I have no idea what, what I or, or any American can really say to Hamid because what's been taken from him is, is, uh, is profound, I think. And what's been taken from his family, these are things that he'll never get back. And, and so I, I don't have a pat conclusion about this, right? I guess I just ended up hoping that with story, I could convey to readers some sense of, of, of the cost to Hamid and the people around him. You know, the investigation of Hamid and, and the trial definitely turned him into a, a sort of caricature. Uh, so I hope people who read the story get a sense of him as a three-dimensional human. Jason Fagoni, thanks for taking the time and thanks for writing the story. We appreciate it. Thank you, Damien. What has been the, the best thing um, for you uh, about being out of prison? What, what's been the thing that has brought you uh, the most joy? Uh, just being a blessing being out here with family and friends and all the supporters. Uh, honestly, uh, just truly a blessing. Again, that was Hamid Hayat. Thanks to Jason Fagoni for being my guest today. Please read Jason's story on Hamid in the Chronicle app or online at sfchronicle.com slash Hayat. That's H-A-Y-A-T. Thanks also to King Kaufman and Cecilia Lay for producing this episode. And thank you for listening.